What up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game Podcast. Just coming to you three days since John and I last recorded, but John is not with me tonight. Instead, I have Jason Hagholm. We are going to talk about UFC 249 and the Money in the Bank show that was uh, this evening. And Jason, what's going on, man? Oh, not much, Double G. Uh, you know, we got some normalcy back in our life this past weekend with uh, some fights that went down, especially with the UFC pay-per-view, and uh, it just kind of made life feel normal, even though for maybe just one day, then followed up with the WWE pay-per-view, but combat sports is helping heal some of the, the, the void of what's normally would be going on with NHL or NBA playoffs and, and just normal things you can do in your life, especially with this being uh, Mother's Day this weekend where some a lot of people couldn't see their moms. Yep. That pay-per-view coming on uh, Saturday and Sunday added some normalcy back into our lives. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, a lot of the stuff that happened with UFC and, you know, this even started Friday night uh, prior to, to Saturday with situation there. But just you, we had two shows on consecutive days, both of them doing their best at this empty arena stuff that uh, that we've been having to deal with. Now, the UFC, this is their first empty arena show. WWE has been doing a bunch of them, which show felt more like the regular show that we're used to for you? Well, I think MMA, especially with how the UFC has kind of bred the empty arena vibe into their fan base. I mean, if you've been watching The Ultimate Fighter for years, there's been no crowd there except just the coaches. And recently, the past couple of summers with the Contender Series, I mean, MMA, it just kind of breeds, breeds in more naturally, I think, to the empty arena, whereas WWE, especially in that, I thought the WWE Championship match with Drew McIntyre and Seth Rollins, a crowd would have really helped that match out a lot more. Like, it was an excellent match, but the crowd being there would have really helped bring it up a, a couple more notches, at least to me, but... Saturday, it just felt like another great show. The fights told the story. You really didn't miss out on the fans. And just even from the broadcasting standpoint, the broadcasters themselves thought it was going to be weird. It just seemed like another event and no no fans not being there wasn't an issue. The thing that stood out, and this is not really... I guess it's not in WWE's control unless they change their style. But when you watched real-life selling of moves that hurt on the UFC show and you compare it to what we see weekly with WWE or what we saw tonight, though I thought a couple of matches did a really good job of making sure the selling wasn't too silly. Uh, the the it, Watching UFC back-to-back with WWE just made WWE seem so much more fake than I would normally see it because the thing that makes WWE fun and that it makes it okay for you to suspend the disbelief is the fact that there are, you know, generally 12,000 fans kind of going nuts. And and so it feels fun and it feels like you're part of that. But when that crowd is not there and these wrestlers are overselling for moves as if they are pandering to a crowd that doesn't exist – that has frustrated me way more than I 
would have thought when we first started watching these matches. Yeah, and I think with, as well, like, WWE's been, what, a month or more now of these empty arena shows, and I think the wrestling fan side of me has really kind of felt the burnout of it. Like, AEW was a little different this past Wednesday where, you know, they've at least trying to imp- uh, implement their talent as fans for that crowd noise, where WWE, they haven't done that, and you just felt the burnout, like, SmackDown had some good stuff on it, but then once... Uh, like an eight-man tag was done. I was so burnt out on that show. There's just spots I was willing to die and just getting to, as you said, some of the selling going on, it's just tough because as we've talked about before, those wrestlers are generally, their DNA is encoded to get the fans to participate in their match and there are no fans there. It's It just seems goofy at times uh, and you know, there's nothing they can do. They still have to keep that flow going because fans will be back hopefully sooner rather than later, but it just still comes off a little awkward and wacky. What I wonder if the solution could be something more like what we saw with Seth and Drew tonight, where the only time that they really sold moves for a a large amount of time is Seth hitting those knees, and it was like knee after knee, you know, to to get the big man down, and, and Drew sold those. But the spots that worked great, I thought, were in the last, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute or whatever, where they just went, big move, bang, sell it, come back, hit a move of my own, bang, sell it for a second and come back. Like, that's what the, you know, the the, the fighting is different, obviously, but that's what the UFC was last night. Like, every time Justin Gaethje popped uh, Tony Ferguson in the face with the nastiest straight right, Tony Ferguson didn't like do the crazy legs dance until he was really, really, really hurt. He came right back with his own shot. So I I thought, I don't know if Seth and Drew necessarily watched the UFC last night or anything, but they stood out in, and and this is, this might just be them too, because they've been able, at least Seth had that match with Kevin Owens, which I thought was the best match, uh, WrestleMania weekend. But Seth, you know, Drew had, had a fun match with Brock. It just wasn't very long. But I wonder if those two just get it because you watch NXT and you see the dream and Adam Cole and I'm watching the dream going like this guy's all smoke and mirrors because without the crowd, without the act, without the gimmick, he is so bad. Like he's like almost, uh, you know, really like uh, a level of, of bad that you don't normally see on televised wrestling. So. Uh, I, I hope I hope WWE, especially AEW, is going to do their own thing. That they have a much different style. But I do hope some of those wrestlers watch that UFC show on Saturday and go, "Okay, like this is realistically what this thing looks like." Because those of us, you know, who are selling, you know, overly selling to a crowd that doesn't exist and to an invisible TV audience, like that isn't compelling. And I think you know we we have a group on our on our fight game podcast group where both UFC and WWE WWE fans at the same time. And we get different things out of both shows. It isn't to say that WWE has to mimic the UFC. That is not what I'm saying at all, but just to make that part of the match a little bit more realistic, because I think it will play into the drama way more than 
the you know the over the the selling and 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 not coming back immediately kind of stuff so but you know it was it was a great thing to compare against because i think uh i think i think you know the ufc show was was, is obviously much better in that environment but like you said we've seen that before we've seen tough fights we've seen early prelims or prelim shows where nobody in vegas is even there until you know the third or fourth fight in the main event so we're sort of more used to it and wwe's product is built around fans so kind of a fun back-to-back night to analyze that but let's actually talk about the uh the ufc show because the news broke on friday that jacques array and two of his cornermen had tested positive for the coronavirus and I think the scary thing was that he thought he may be positive. He told them he thought they may be positive, and he still was not sent home, and he still was around everybody in the hotel for two days before he actually did test positive, uh, which shows you, A, that, that the tests are, you know, they're, they're not great uh, when it comes to uh, making sure that people are not sick. Uh, if if you do show as being positive, you know I think it's probably a hundred percent. But uh, just uh, you know they had they have a situation where you know business is not you as usual, and I don't think they're really great at being a company that necessarily cares about the safety of the human beings involved. Like that's not their forte. They uh, their forte is understanding how to create content to, to sell to TV and and to uh, pay-per-view. But when it comes to this humanistic side of the business, you really see what Dana White's leadership is. And look, look this is this is uh, their first time doing this. I'm going to cut them a little slack, but I'm not going to cut them that much slack because when you look at your employees uh, as just uh, sort of chess pieces or checkers pieces. And, you know, it's all about who's the toughest and who wants to fight the most and who's ready to go at the drop of a hat and less about safety and weight cutting, less about, um, you know, injuries, uh, something like Michael Bisping, uh, being able to come back uh, probably too early, but he's so tough and he's such a company guy. Looking out for your people, you need to save the fighters from themselves. And this is where I think Dana White's leadership falls way short because he doesn't look at his employees, in my opinion, he doesn't look at his fighters like he would uh, someone he truly, absolutely cared about. And thus we see uh, something like this happen where, you know, Jacare shouldn't should not have even come to Jacksonville and he's sick and two other people are sick and we'll see it's possible that other people from the show will be infected it's possible they won't be um you know AEW talent was hanging out as well around uh at the hotel that week so uh, this story is is in the beginning and I I hope like this is not me hoping anybody gets sick to say I'm showing you, Dana, that you're wrong. Like, I hope nobody gets sick, but these are just these little things when it comes to true leadership. We're not talking about making money. We're not talking about, um, you know, 
uh, having being a great partner to TV. We're talking about true leadership when it comes to taking care of people. I think uh, Dana failed in this one. I think Dana's failed since the beginning of this coronavirus. Like once coronavirus out was like starting to kind of become a story right after UFC 247. And he literally went to the media. I think it was to Aaron Bronstetter of TSN or saying, I don't give a shit about coronavirus. Like that was the ultimate sign. And then more trying to spin, especially when they wanted to do the show back uh, in the middle of April, trying to spin that it was the media that didn't want to have this fight card because uh, the media was too busy looking out for the good of the fighters when Dana wasn't. I think that just once again shows his leadership. And look, Dana's a tremendous promoter, but he's really come across, if not one of the worst people right now with this whole coronavirus thing and running shows. And yes, the fights being on was nice, but I think there's just a lot that sports leagues right now are trying to learn. Like UFC kind of is the blueprint for not only just MMA and combat sports, but they're going to be the blueprint for the NBA, Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, uh, and the NFL come September on how to do this. And right now, like the testing, it's going to be as good as it can be in terms of the swab tests. I know that the results that came back positive was taken uh, from Friday and it took or, or a little bit longer to come through with the result but antibody tests that I've seen right now are just a total crapshoot it's almost like you have to keep doing multiple of them to even come close to a positive number mm-hmm. on those to be correct uh, so those tests right now are just all over the place and testing right now as a whole has to get better and I mean, if and the thing is, Jacare knew this and kind of let them know, like, I've been in contact with someone. That's where I totally agree with you, uh, where they should have been like, OK, we've scrapped your fight. Don't even bother. Stay back in Brazil or wherever he was at. Don't bother. There, I think he's there, from Florida, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe from Orlando or something. Yeah, I think he's still tr- I think he's at America Top Team. I if I'm 100 percent correct on that. But still, don't make the trek up to Jacksonville. Stay home. Don't bother coming because you're going to risk infecting not only uh, your camp, but your opponent, other fighters, other hotel staff, other UFC employees, what have you. Just stay home. But the fights had to go on, and that's where the UFC let down. I mean, the UFC tried to put the spin that our testing worked. Look, we caught this and moved the guy. But the risk is just so much, especially with a disease where you can have it and you don't know you have it for like almost a week. Mm -hmm. Like that's the scary part about this coronavirus. So I'm going to be critical of two more things, and then we're going to gush over the show because the show was fantastic. But I think we have to point two more things out, which is one – when they had come out with some of the regulations for doing the show, one of the things that they said was that Joe Rogan was not going to go into the octagon to interview the fighters. They were, they wanted to be safer than sorry. The fighter was going to go into some sort of uh, small studio box or something and then communicate with Joe there, which was safe. And then supposedly, I mean, I don't know what happened if Joe talked him into doing what he wanted. I don't, I don't know, because he, he's been sort of up and down on this whole thing. Apparently, he made a fit. Like, no, that's stupid. I want to go in the cage and interview them to at least feel normal about this. And that's what we got on Saturday night was just your normal post-fight interviews. And and that was, to me, that was a, a little bit of a a mistake and, and just um, a little bit of a recklessness to the show. Now, 
some may say, well, what about WWE? What about AEW? Sure, but learn from what they do incorrectly and do it correctly. Don't just copy them because it makes for better TV. Um, and then the second thing is, uh, and, and you will, I'm sure you will have an opinion on this because you cover uh, sports yourself. Uh, uh, the fighters were warned to not be critical of the UFC and their process for the, for the show. Also, the media was warned to not be critical from what I understand about this or, or else, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't get credentialed or, or something like that. So what were your thoughts on, on those two issues? Well, the post fight interview thing, I mean, especially when the UFC made the statement that they weren't going to be doing uh, in cage interviews, uh, you're like, okay, look, UFC's learned from the mistakes of other uh, of pro wrestling with this. And then they went out and just continued to do it. It's like, well, whatever you say doesn't matter. And so it's just the, the Wild West when it comes to MMA, as it usually is. Uh, not the greatest thing. Um, but if, you know, they, they show no symptoms or anything, okay. But hopefully, you know, they have a card on Wednesday. They learn from it and maybe can uh, – Joe Rogan, I don't think, will be doing those shows. So they can actually use this box that they've built or want to use. But, yeah, this other story of if you're critical of our testing or whatever goes on with coronavirus, you can lose your purse. That is an absolutely insane story that's been going on, especially with the media as well, that they would lose their credentials for this card. And for the media, honestly, I don't think there needs to be media these i've seen tons of top uh mma journalists right now that are covering these cards from the comfort of their own home ufc set up virtual uh interview areas for the fighters uh both pre and post fight so i think you can roll with that you don't really need to be there i don't even know why you would want to be there to risk it personally there's just way too much risk but this for the fighters being critical like that is just some insane stuff coming out of the UFC and it, it's really something that makes the UFC look bad when that first that story came out it originally came out from the tweet from Steven Espinosa who's in charge of uh, mm-hmm. Showtime boxing so you hold it with a grain of salt because you know there's some uh, vendetta between both Steven Espinosa and Dana White and you know boxing UFC what have you um, but when Dana was asked about this on Saturday he really didn't deny it or he just went in his typical just tear down the person's character and and name call which i mean very childish but i mean it's dana but still like not a good look and honestly it's something the ufc really needs to come through and give a better explanation and a better reasoning for this because these fighters are not only risking their lives to get that paycheck for your entertainment but like dana's whole company is based on the talent that the UFC has. They have the best mixed martial artists in the world. And for you to just hold this paycheck over them is just ludicrous. And another reason why these sports not being unionized is just not the best thing. Like this was, if anything, could be the the tipping point to hopefully maybe set unionization in the right direction. I don't think it'll happen, but there's just so much, at least in the since March, that could really lead fighters towards a, a solid union. I think many people know this story, but the the NBA union is created out of the NBA All-Star game about to be televised and Bill Russell getting the, the, the players on both teams to go, OK, this is our chance to uh, 
you know, you know, to, to group together and force the hand of the NBA to, to give us, you know, better, uh, stuff that, that you, that, that, you know, whether it's whatever, whatever the conditions were. And so, you know, we've always talked about when, when is the best opportunity to do this for pro wrestlers? Well, it's right before WrestleMania. It's Vince's big show. This WrestleMania would have been the perfect opportunity if they really wanted to do it. Uh, and, and, and similarly, this show was perfect, was a perfect opportunity to basically go look, you know, but the problem is, is let's say Justin Gaethje or Tony Ferguson go, look, you know, Dana, I, I've talked to the 18 fighters on this card. We're all holding out for more stuff for, uh, you know, better benefits or, or whatever it may be. And, uh, he would have been like, okay, well, um, I'm going to call up whoever is on weight and replace all of you. And then and, and that's how he would scare them away, for scare them into not doing that. Now, I'm not saying that they want to do this, this, but this is just sort of like the hypothetical about how you would do this whole thing. So they, they, they're not going to do it. It doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's such a... It's such a hassle when it comes to this stuff because you you so badly as as fans of the sport you so badly want you know the fighters to get the the most out of out of it because we know that their their careers are short. I mean, look at you know let's talk about the fight right now. But Tony Ferguson looks shot to me, and he's not an old guy. But uh, I don't know how many how many main events are left in his future because he got absolutely outclassed in this fight with Gaethje. He did not look nearly the same as he usually does. And he took such a beating that, you know, you, you rarely see a guy take that much punishment over, over five rounds. And he took so much punishment. Uh, finally, you know, he finally started to, to wobble a little bit there in the fourth. And then, um, and then in the fifth round, like he took a jab and, I don't know what his body was trying to do, but his body was trying to tell him to stop because it wasn't functioning correctly. And thankfully, uh, the referee stopped it and, and Gaethje wins five, uh, fifth round by TKO and uh, is the interim champion, but he decided not to wear his interim championship belt. What yeah, I mean, I'm fine on him not wearing this interim champ- championship belt. I mean, he wants the real one and he's going to be getting that next title shot against Khabib, which... I think he poses a lot of problems for Khabib, but that fight was absolutely insane. I had a lot of flashbacks to uh, Julio Cesar Chavez, Meldrick Taylor, where Chavez just kept hitting Taylor with some serious, powerful shots that ended up really altering uh, Meldrick Taylor's entire career. And Gaethje just kept hitting Tony and wrecking him. He hit Tony with an overhand right that honestly would have killed a normal human being. Like, I have no idea what Tony Ferguson is made of. He had more guts than brains, really, and just total will. And I've seen some people saying Tony quit in this fight, which is the most ludicrous thing on social media because Tony Ferguson took at least 10 uh, insane power shots to the head that would have dropped a lesser opponent uh, 
especially in this deep 155 pound uh, weight class that the UFC has. I mean, Gaethje looks sharp, crisp, and he hits like a Mack truck. Tony Ferguson, you know, you wonder because he he the uh, week of April 18th, even though there was no cart, he still cut to 155. That's then had dumb. to put that weight back on, then put it back off. So his body went through a lot in just about a, less than a month's time, and I think that may have affected his performance. I don't think you said he's a shot fighter. I don't think so. I think you know, get Tony on a normal schedule, and he'd been training forever. Maybe he was just overtrained, and you weren't sure sure about the certainty of it. Whereas Justin Gaethje took the this fight with Tony Ferguson on originally nine days, and then had a couple more weeks to get prepared. So a normal camp for him, and it showed. And you know, Gaethje right now has totally changed his style. He's much more of a complete mixed martial. He used to be just if you're hurt, I'm going in for the kill. I'm gonna get reckless, and then that always leads to problems because you're going to get countered and someone like Tony Ferguson he'll catch you but he fought a smart crisp fight when he had Tony hurt he respected Tony enough to know that wounded tigers are the most dangerous things backed off waited for his next shot again and then finally just wore him down before Herb Dean stopped the fight yeah who knows if Ferguson is uh is ever going to get back to this level uh, you know it's another fight that he's had on his resume but i just watched him react um to what did not seem to me like a very different um or or mysterious style like justin justin Gaethje was just boxing like he was he was catching uh, he was catching Ferguson with shots, and and it wasn't like he had a specific style that was different, or but it just looked like Ferguson was like, okay, this isn't working. I'm going to do this, and this isn't working. Now I'm going to do this, and I don't know if you if you are familiar with um, the TV show Martin, but but uh, Martin plays a character named uh, Dragonfly Jones, who is this supposed karate master, and every time he fights. He is so confident that he is going to beat up the guy who he's sparring that uh, he just goes out there and by the time he realizes that he's he he doesn't have it, he's going to get beat up. He does like crazy stuff, like he starts barking like a dog and he starts like biting and and that like I was waiting for Ferguson to just like you know, do something like so wacky because he could, and whatever he was doing with the exception of one punch at the end of the second round, whatever he tried did not work. And it was it, you know, like you said, he, he did have uh, an interesting camp. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he's looked his best in his last few fights, but he's just so tough that he's able to outlast some of these guys but man, it, they, they, they looked like two different levels of fighters in there. And, and I never expected to see it like that. I just don't think for Tony Ferguson, we can say the benefit of the doubt that he's a shot fighter. I mean, this is a guy that had the longest win streak in that division and hadn't lost, I think, since 2012, where he lost a decision to Michael Johnson. Like to think back to then, Justin Gaethje was just two and zero as a professional mixed martial artist, and Conor McGregor was still on welfare in Ireland. Like that's an insane strength. I think you can, we can give Tony uh, the benefit. You get whoever Tony steps in there next with. I think he's gonna, you know, be re- refocused. 
uh, he looks, you know, he <laughs> suffered so much damage. He suffered a an orbital bone, uh, a broken orbital bone is in the hospital. And I saw a video uh, of him uh, on social media and he's looking, you know, in good spirits. So, you know, and a loss for a fighter can always be a good thing uh, in a way. So I, I still think Tony's got a lot left in the tank at 155. But as you said, he has taken a lot of damage, but maybe he, he changes up his style. Who knows? He is an insanely talented athlete as well. I think I think there's still some some uh, tread left on the tires for Tony Ferguson. So the uh, semi the other main event was uh, Dominic Cruz coming off of uh, was like a three and a half year layoff or something like that uh, against Henry Cejudo. And Henry Cejudo stops him in the second round. I know Dominic was unhappy with the stoppage. Um, Dominic looked old. He looked uh, much older than than you remember. And it's not like we haven't seen him on TV because he does a lot of commentary. But once he took off his shirt and once he started moving around, you're like, okay, he is he is uh, you know someone who's much older than the last time we saw him. Uh, and Cejudo. Uh, he did not seem to be fooled in any way by Cruz's, you know, uh, interesting style of, of, of back and forth stance, like non-traditional boxing stances. And at the end of the fight, Cejudo decided to retire, which I don't think most people bought because he is at the top of his game. And even though, you know, he is 33 and I'm sure uh, wrestling in, in, for the Olympics is is probably... Uh, really, really hard on the body. So he's probably all of his 33 years old, but he is still so talented at the top of his game. Um, his biggest paydays are to come, I would assume. And uh, he said he was retired. What did you think about the fight and then about his announcement? I thought just with the fight, like I picked Cruz to win because, I mean, Dominic Cruz is one of the most smartest minds in mixed martial arts and I thought could maybe devise a game plan to to get the fight to to how he would want it. But just Henry Cejudo's athleticism and and youth, really, like he hasn't had the body torn up as much as Dominic Cruz has. He was just so much faster just looking, just getting those strikes off. And really the biggest break in the fight for Cejudo came after that accidental clash of heads where Keith Peterson stopped him. They, they checked the cut. Then right after that, it's Cejudo putting a flurry together that eventually puts away Dominic Cruz before he then complained about the stoppage, saying it was like I thought it was an excellent stoppage. And I think there's more to go into, especially after Dominic's comments post uh, fight, saying that referee Keith Peterson was uh, a smelling of alcohol and cigarettes before the event. So you can't take his judgment there, which I thought came off as the biggest sore loser I've ever seen. And, and how dare you judge an official's character on that? Because the officials can't really speak up on that. And I thought it was a fine stoppage, but. Yeah, I mean, pretty classless. It was a bad look. I mean, Dominic's very competitive, but to take it that way, I don't think that makes you look good at all. But Cejudo looked great. And as you said, big paydays are ahead. So he retires. And I know he wanted a big payday after his last fight, the victory over Marlon Marais in Chicago. Didn't get it. Feels he's worth it. I mean, look, he is now starting to become at least an interesting name in mixed martial arts. I don't know if himself he could sell a pay-per-view right now, but he's he's a good name. He's keeping one division afloat still as the flyweight champion and now one of the most exciting bantamweights in mixed martial arts. And I think like you and many other out there, he's out there retiring to get a new contract. Who knows if he will get it? He should hopefully get it. He is... 
a, a guy that's moving at least uh, stories in terms of the MMA media. He's a he's a good name, but you've got to think as well. Like, is One FC maybe going to be giving him a call to get that rubber match with uh, Mighty Mouse Johnson? Because you know the paydays out there in Asia are way better than anything the UFC could offer. So you got to wonder if that's on the table. He also may want to compete again for try to make the U.S. Olympic wrestling team. I just don't see the need for that maybe pro wrestling's in there i don't know but sahudo's got a lot of options out there that he may have to weigh and ufc better really come correct with their offer all right let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor bet online uh with currently no nba nhl or mlb you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on from their online casino to poker and blackjack. They're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, which the finale is this week. So if you want to bet on Survivor, get your picks in. Big Brother, American Idol. I think American Idol is down to the top seven uh, stock prices and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest uh, 4th of July time frame. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Go to betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. I bet uh, on a I had a, I had a parlay and, and a straight up bet on UFC. Lost them both, and I was. This is going to be harder to bet because you're it's some unknown circumstances. But I'm going to be back for uh, the next UFC show. But also, uh, just a shout out to uh, our my buddy uh, who's on our page, Russ Roman. He decided to to jump on Bet Online. He used the uh, Blue Wire. Uh, code promo code to join and got his welcome bonus so he was digging in on on the ufc bets as well so all right let's talk about the last three fights and then we'll move on to money in the bank these are the two of these fights uh are are pretty quick because they were they were quick knockouts um the quickest one of the quickest knockouts of of all time uh francis and ganu six 18 seconds knocked out uh rosenstruck uh rosenstrike and it was um kind of you know what was promised right like it, it was a, a knockout was promised uh i think rosen strikes a problem was he just went backwards instead of you know moving around ingano he moved backwards he couldn't move backwards fast enough and then he eventually bumped into the cage which ingano used to uh, throw Several punches after after the big punch that that just knocked uh, Rosenstruck uh, Rosenstrike uh, crazily, but yeah, just quickly, quick knockout, insane. Ingano is a beast, and then he's the most uh, polite gentleman in the post fight press co- post fight interview with Joe Rogan. Just so calm, heart rate was back down to to pre fight standards, and just uh, just a, what a display with the knockout. Man, you couldn't pay me enough money to get hit by Francis Ngannou. Like, just, like, that's what heavyweight MMA is. And and Ngannou right now is the cream of the crop right now. That division is just waiting on one fight, Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier, the rubber match. And then, really, I think that's going to be in Ngannou's division. Uh, he hits with so much power. He's 
rebuilt himself up. Like, you remember when Nganu first came in, quick victories by knockout, one insane quick one by a standing Kimura, got the fight with Stipe Miocic and didn't look good because he hadn't been on that big stage. And Miocic's team put a great game plan together to end, you know, Nganu tired himself out. He had the terrible fight against Derek Lewis, but slowly but surely built himself back up. And, you know, it seemed like as well, uh, Jairzinho Rosenstruck upset Francis Ngannou by calling him out and you don't want to make that man mad all he had to do was come forward wasn't the most crisp boxing but just all it takes is one on the chin to knock you out and that's exactly what happened I think Rosenstruck will be you know fine like if you're gonna get knocked out in like 18 seconds by one guy that's the guy that's like okay he's got good hands what have you it's the first loss. Rosenstruck can only improve from that. There's things to improve on. Definitely on some certain uh, ability, movement. Maybe you want to move diagonally, not just straight backwards. But Francis Ngannou is definitely, I still think, the future of the heavyweight division in the UFC. GSP is going into the UFC Hall of Fame. That is maybe the the, the biggest gimme Hall of Famer that uh, we will see in quite some time, just the quintessential UFC fighter when mixed martial arts and, and the UFC uh, was became more about just one predominant discipline and GSP mixed his wrestling, his striking. Um, he, he changed his body several times for different types of fights to, to, uh, to make sure he had strength in certain areas. Uh, just, uh, just one of, one of the classic, uh, UFC fighters of all time. I I mean, I think people are saying, you know, if you're talking best, best fighter overall of all time, uh, you're either talking at least in the UFC GSP or, or John Jones, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this is an easy one. He, he's going to be in any MMA hall of fame, uh, just a classic, classic guy, GSP. Oh, absolutely. I think. He's, to me, the GOAT because he doesn't have all the baggage that a John Jones has with steroids or drug use and reckless driving incidents uh, outside of the octagon. The only issue he really ever had was that grease gate back at UFC 94. (laughs) Uh, Remember that? Mm -hmm. Uh, But honestly, like GSP fought at a time in the UFC when that welterweight division was maybe just like 1B in terms of the top divisions the UFC had compared to their their light heavyweight division at the time and beat everyone. He had two losses in his career and avenged them both, both to Matt Hughes and Matt Sarah, and really put the sport of mixed martial arts on the map in Canada, made this sport viable, made so many people want to get involved with it and show the, the talent level that was here. He exploded it in his own province of Quebec. He was the headliner uh, for the first ever show in in Ontario, UFC 129 at the Rogers Centre in uh, Toronto. And I think I posted this on the Facebook group, but it's a real tragedy for George St. Pierre that as great of an athlete as he is, that he never won a Lou Marsh Award, which is the Athlete of the Year in Canada, where there was at least a point in from 2008 on to 2011 where he definitely should have won that award at least one time. Just a class act, one of the best fighters of all time, to me the greatest of all time, and as you said, a no-brainer, a, a slam-dunk uh, Hall of Fame uh, nominee. And then we had uh, Calvin Cater knocking out Jeremy Stevens uh, in the second round with 
just a nasty straight elbow. Uh, I, I think it was actually, I couldn't tell if he was starting if he if he wanted to throw the first strike and and Stevens just kind of started at the same time, but it, 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 I wasn't sure if it was a counter shot or not, but just nasty elbow, uh, and then Stevens nearly goes out, and then he follows him to the ground, blasts him with another elbow that just cuts Stevens up, and Stevens you know looked like a, a pro wrestler blading, like that's how great the the cut looked. And uh, just uh, he he got he was he was upset. Stevens uh, missed weight by a large amount, and uh, and Cater took it out on him in the second round. Yeah, you know what? That was a good performance from Cater because the veteran Stevens really was taking it to him in the first round. I had him uh, Jeremy Stevens winning that first round was just you know getting after Cater, getting off first with the strikes and and landing the better combinations. But you just get in those fire exchanges, those firefights. And unfortunately, Jeremy Stevens got burned with what I believe they call a hellbow that hit him right, uh, Stevens right in the face. And then, as you said, just followed up with some nasty ground. It was the second elbow that just busted Stevens up nasty, like a a nine on the Muda scale uh, (laughs) level of, of, of blood coming out of his head but yeah a big win for calvin cater and uh you know calvin cater is just i think another guy to really look out for at at featherweight in the ufc and then the opener uh of the main card uh, de castro and greg hardy boring fight de castro uh it seems like he hurt his foot at some point and um I think he just stopped. Toe. I mean, then he just stopped fighting completely. Like he he didn't throw any strikes. Hardy didn't really throw any strikes either. But he, you know, he, it was just it was just a really boring fight. Hardy wins unanimous decision. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just thinking, okay, DeCastro, you hurt your toe. Uh, you can throw punches still. You didn't break your knuckles, so he did not do that. And uh, boring fight. But uh, the other the the what what was some of your favorite stuff on on the prelims? Uh, definitely Vicente Luque, uh, Nico Price. Those two went to absolute war on each other where I think it was Vicente uh, hurting Nico just before the end of the first round. And then coming back in the second, it's Nico hurting Vicente. Uh, and then just these guys were just exchanging shot for shot. And then if you see Nico Price's eye, it is just a sight to be seen. His eye was swollen shut. That referee Jason Herzog had to come in. They stopped the fight. Right decision for that to be to be stopped. But that was a, a rematch. And I'd love to see those fight fight one more time a rubber match just an awesome awesome fight like that fight could have won fight of the night if it wasn't for the main event like the level of how stacked that card was a lot of fights are like this could be fight of the night on any other card probably but not like that was an all-star game level card that the ufc put on and uh, and yeah and you know the the prelims are on uh i think they are on espn plus and uh you know pettis beat Cerrone, Esparza beat uh, Michelle Waterson. That that's the fight that cost me my parlay on this show. And um uh it was a Verdum uh yeah. lost decision. I've seen a card, uh like a bet card where they had everyone, they bet on 14 fights and had 13 out of 14 and freaking Verdum in his bad <laughs> just cost this guy and I felt like he bet 300 could have won almost five grand Dang. and Verdum's just poor out of shapeness and and getting that cage rust shaken off like I just only think could you imagine if he came out like he shot in for that takedown right in the third and if he had submitted Olenek who's like one of these veterans as well don't get me wrong but 
uh, it, I just felt crushed for that guy. Like his 5,000 was my 5,000 when I saw that. <laughs> All right, let's take another quick break before we talk about uh, Money in the Bank. Uh, we're going to talk about our friends at Blue Chew. Uh, guys looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds, get to bluechew.com. Bluechew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. I still need to learn the science on how a chewable works faster. I, I guess it gets in the bloodstream quicker. Um, you can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your jo- straight to your door in discreet packaging. And here's a great deal. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use the promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E Chew.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Okay, let's talk about the Money in the Bank show from uh, just tonight, Sunday night. Um, I'm not going to talk about every match, but I do want to get your thoughts on just the spectacle that was the Money in the Bank ladder match, it, like two ladder matches, a race. It was like obstacle course. It was like a fighting race. I, I don't even know what to call it, but uh, it was silly. It was wacky. It was crazy. It was goofy. Um, it was overly produced. It was awkwardly produced at times. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, overly, I don't, I don't know. There, there's so many, so many things to describe this. But overall, your thoughts on what they did here to try and make this show a little bit more interesting than uh, than your normal empty arena show. Well, I mean, I think WWE's done a pretty good job with these taped matches. Obviously, the, that Boneyard match at WrestleMania was excellent. Even though the Wyatt Funhouse match was fun. And you know what? This is an element. WWE, when they're in the, that wacky, taped type of environment, that's where they put some of their best stuff on. And I thought that the match, the ladder, the Money in the Bank ladder matches, was very entertaining because you knew it was gonna, you knew it was taped. You, you were just more interested. Who are they gonna run into in the building? And we got some cameos in there. We saw Brother Love in the bathroom. Uh, uh, John Laurinaitis still with this people power. Uh, gimmick vince even uh, in jeans uh, i mean that was a thing. <laughs> I, th- I thought that was pretty fun uh, i mean i thought they did a really good job with it honestly it was fun uh each uh participant in a way got a moment to shine through except dana brooke they made her look like the biggest idiot in in the history <laughs> she did not the know company. the rules What's rules they Rules they've been pushing for three weeks on television that everyone knew that uh, you had to go to the roof to compete and uh, try to get the briefcase down. But uh, what have you? I thought that was really fun. I think AJ Styles deserves a contract for life because his acting has improved tenfold. Uh, he 
was hilarious, especially like got mad at the picture of Ray uh, on the wall, uh, opened that door that reminded him of the Boneyard match. Oh, no. And then when Alistair Black threw him in there, I was like, and he was selling like, oh, I'm stuck. I'm just like, open the door, AJ. That's all you got to do. He was great. Otis is amazing. Uh, Asuka, I thought, was not only entertaining, but of someone booked towards winning a match, was booked the smartest. All she wanted to do was get in the elevator and up there, try to avoid, take less damage as much. It was fun. And but I she, think, didn't she get beat to the floor that she wanted to get to? Yeah, the elevator thing was weird. I don't know. Like, there's no one in that building. Why are the elevators so slow? <laughs> The um the the other thing and and so uh, Otis and and Oscar are the are the two winners of the matches. Uh, the other thing that was interesting was, so the goal was to get to the roof, and not everybody made it to the roof, and I'm not exactly sure why. The uh, Daniel, I, I think it was Daniel Bryan. I actually wrote it down. Daniel Bryan, Dana Brooke. And who else did not get to the get to the Shayna? Shayna was the other one. They did not get to the roof for whatever reason. And um, you know, as someone who wasn't in the match, Elias got to the roof because he interfered and he hit Corbin, which allowed AJ to fumble the briefcase right into Otis's fingers. And Otis was not dropping that, uh, and, and that helped him win. But you know, did did they film this on two separate days and, and Daniel Bryan and Shayna were unavailable on the second day so they couldn't go to the roof? I didn't get that part at all. No, that's a bit odd, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it just adds to the element that just how tough it is was to get to the roof. Who knows? Uh, what have you. But uh, on your point there of how we got to Otis winning, I thought that was so well done. Like, sure, Elias made his surprise return uh, in a match that was taped and knocking Corbin to have the briefcase go right into AJ's hands and he fumbled him. Just how AJ did that fumble on and then just right into Otis's hands. I thought that was so well done. Uh, But yeah, just not some people not being there. I think it also showed, especially Dana, like you're made to look like an idiot. You can't even make it up to the roof. Like (laughs) your stock's just totally dead. Yeah, I I think the Vince spot is going to be the one that people that get people talking. But um, I and you know John and I were talking about this on Friday. This is the exact spot that we predicted, which was I hope someone goes into Vince's office as he's working and he gets super mad, and he did. And then he turned around. I'm assuming to eat his steak with ketchup or or, or whatever he he eats. Um, so uh, so uh, yeah, you know you you see Vince, you get the great moment, but then you look at Vince, you go, oh man, I forgot. You know Vince is getting old, and. Um, he had eyes like Tony Ferguson. Yeah, poor guy. Uh, that you know, this, this age, you know, it's going to catch up to you. The um, the thing about the the match now, I see on social media varied uh, thoughts and uh, opinions on it. I thought it was fun. I'm so happy they didn't do actual money in the bank ladder matches for real, like in a ring. I, I Maybe you can do one. I think as those guys at WrestleMania showed, you could do one. But having two in this empty arena uh, style, I think would have been just really bad. So I'm actually glad that they did this. But a lot of people didn't like it. Um, we, we're going to have a piece up uh, tomorrow morning, or when people are listening to this, they'll probably be listening Monday morning anyway. So today, for you people... Uh, Chris DiPatrio, who's um, written stuff for us in the past, he he had put together his thoughts on the Money in the Bank, and 
uh john i'm sure when john comes back on uh with me on friday he may he, he may want to to give some his, his two cents about it but you know it was definitely wacky and if you were interested in sort of the seriousness of it all which i am not because i just can't imagine taking any any of this stuff seriously right now uh i could see why you were bothered but to me i think they hit some fun stuff you know you had Heyman, you had brother love you had johnny ace there was a a terrible looking doink that was that was there. Oh man, Alabama doink way better than that doink. Like that was <laughs> that was embarrassing. That was a waste of a spot. You had you know you know you had Stephanie McMahon in the Vince spot yelling at poor Dana and and Naya's like knocked out and she's telling you know Naya making fun of Naya's drooling on the ground. So Steph was there. Uh, otherwise, you know, I it was it was what I wanted out of it. Uh, maybe it was a little bit too silly. But uh, I was completely fine with it. And the other thing about this show is like literally like less than two and a half hours, which was amazing. That was pretty solid. Like not since the In Your House days did a show end East Coast time before 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Match of the Night is uh, Seth Rollins and Drew McIntyre. We talked about it a little bit earlier when we were talking about the comparison to the UFC show. This was as good as you can do in this environment, I think. Seth is amazing at... Um, I think vocally registering things without the crowd. And, and I think that's a, that's a crazy skill to have because like we talked about, everything is so much about the crowd and drew is booked damn near perfectly, which makes me sad because when we're all back and, and ready to go, I have a feeling that Vince is going to want to change things just because he doesn't want to remind people of the time when this stuff wasn't that good, but drew was amazing. Seth was great. Just uh, the 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 snugness, the the sounds, the 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 way that they made things look was great. There was that spot where Seth is on the top rope and Drew's caught in that tree of woe position, and uh, and he just throws Seth up. He like does a sit up and then throws Seth like in a in a like a uh, back suplex throw. That was awesome. This was you know when it comes to this style. If you give me matches like this, I am in. But you're, there's there's not too many people able to do these these matches like this. So uh, just amazing stuff by these guys. And Drew Drew wins the match. He's still the champ. Yeah, I thought the thing like to me why I really liked it. It felt like an athletic competition, which I guess kind of goes back to our conversation of uh, comparing it to Saturday's UFC. It felt like a real athletic competition instead of just a match. Like they just brought the best out in each other like that spot where especially like selling wise where where drew hit that overhead belly to belly and seth's back hit the, the announce table just how he sold it like yeah i'd sell it exactly like that like mm-hmm. my that like my intestines are gonna come through uh my bowels uh what have you like just excellent stuff there uh that tree of woe spot was really good and i thought tom phillips sold it well like oh just how his knees wrenched in there like you know you, you can get the feeling of oh my knee would be messed up how my meat would be messed up in there but they they brought the best out of it uh i mean and mean the the seth rollins messiah character took another uh step in the right direction new music for him uh only thing i'm I'm not sure like the handshake i mean they had a great match the sportsmanship was there but i think seth's finally starting to get into that element of the type of heel character he is i mean it sucks that he can't have his faction there because 
some are hurt and some are just not on the show. Uh, but what have you, I think Drew's been excellent as well. Uh, Drew's been making the most out of a terrible situation when a lot of guys would be uh, squandering it by upset at the circumstances and be maybe down on themselves. Who knows? But Drew's just got such a positive mentality. He's just having you know great match after great match on, on TV and then on this pay-per-view. Uh, really fun stuff. Easily the best match on this pay-per-view. All right, just quick thoughts on Braun and Bray. I hate that feud so much. Like, <laughs> this is the most boring feud in in the longest time for me with this company. Like, it's one of the things I actually want to change the channel on. It's so predictable what they were going to do in this feud. Like, it's going to be Bray. Braun's going to swerve him or find a way to put the mask on, fool Bray, and then we're going to get the Fiend. And I just can't get into that right now. I just feel bad for Braun because this should have been his moment maybe two years ago and he's getting it too little too late. But just a terrible circumstances. I hate this feud. That match did nothing for me. Maybe that one was a match people should be really upset about. So wacky, but it, it just didn't gel at all. Yeah, I thought the match was okay per my expectation. Um, the the Bray character is interesting, and and I, and I'm talking about Bray versus the Fiend. He was the Bray Wyatt character. The puppets were there, of course, and this was one of the only non live matches I think because they had to like produce the puppets in 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 there as well. Uh, and uh, you know, they the baby face outsmarts the heel, so. I was okay with that as well. Uh, it was silly, but it was uh, short, and I was happy about that. Uh, Tamina and Bailey, I like Bailey in this character. She was very aggressive. I love Bailey and Sasha together. Tamina could have been anybody, and I would have been fine with it. She didn't screw it up. She didn't make it any. She didn't make it great. She's not a great athlete. She's just big, and she's not a very good wrestler. Uh, but uh, you know. The, the, the focus, rightfully so, was on Bailey and Sasha, so I was fine with this. Yeah, I think uh, Bailey's been one of the, the bright spots of SmackDown uh, watching back uh, every Friday. And you know what? It's still it's not the time to take it. I thought they really built up Tamina as a solid contender, especially with this whole dynamic of is Sasha going to turn on Bailey? You don't know. They're building it up nice, which is a slow burn, which is something that wrestling doesn't have as much anymore. So I liked it. It was fine. And, you know, the right person went over. Um, we don't need, really need to talk about our truth and Lashley. That was a squash. But uh, talk about the uh, opener. I, I kind of came in at the end of this match, so I didn't see the whole thing. It was really good, honestly. Uh, I liked how the majority of the match, it was some of the the newer talent uh, getting some looks. It was a lot of uh, the Forgotten Sons and the Lucha House Party uh, going in there. Uh, was the Forgotten Sons kind of cutting off the ring, working over Grand Metal League a lot. And then, of course, the all hell broke loose where uh, you thought that maybe Miz and Morrison were going to get the titles back, but Lucha House Party broke up a Starship pain before the New Day got the win. It was one of the matches I was really most excited about. It was the perfect match to start the show. I've enjoyed the entire entire tag dynamic of those four teams right now i thought the eight-man tag that they had on smackdown on friday was awesome uh honestly it was it, it was a good match uh i just kind of checked out once bray and uh braun got on there up until drew and seth brought me back and i, I mean the whole point everyone's gonna watch this show was the the money in the bank ladder matches to see how it was played out in the corporate environment uh but all in all like 
this is a show you can easily watch. Wouldn't maybe totally say go out of your way to, but it was it's you know for as short as it was as well. Go out of your way and watch it. Did you watch the Undertaker episode after? I did. How was it? Honestly, it was really good. I did hate how they were trying to say it's like, it's just as good as the last dance. I'm like, simmer, <laughs> simmer down there, WWE. They're like, oh, it's, it's, it's comparable with this ESPN Michael Jordan documentary. I'm like, simmer down there, guys. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I mean, I mean, this is, you know, this this Michael Jordan documentary has been like, you know, 22 years in the making and starting and stopping and like real, you know, really good directors. And so, you know, the, the, it's the time to take advantage of, of the opportunity. But I, I've heard good things and I'm going to try to watch it so that John and I can talk about it on uh, Friday. But hearing good things. So, I, you know, I wasn't originally going to watch it. But now that I've been hearing such good things, I think I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, WWE does a great job with these documentary style pieces and they're at least pushing content to for you to go to the network and watch something on. So I got to give them credit for that. All right. Uh, one more plug for the website this week, fightgamemedia.com. Uh, we're going to have uh, lots of uh, the theme of the week is is uh, first favorite wrestler. So the wrestler who when you were a young fan who you kind of locked on to and uh you know you sort of became that that fan for life so we're gonna have lots of essays from writers on the website starting uh probably as as you listen to this you will see some uh, new posts up with uh first first favorite wrestler week on uh, fightgamemedia.com okay so we are going to start our we want flair segment for Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, the feud in WCW, which culminates at uh, Halloween Havoc. First, you're going to hear Dave Meltzer talk about Hogan leaving WWF in 92 or going on hiatus in 92 and then leaving in 93 and then going to WCW in 94 and sort of all the things uh, behind him leaving and, and ending up there. And then after that, you will hear John and I talk about Hogan's arrival in WCW. Uh, they have a they have a live um, WCW Saturday night where he uh, is seen at a parade. They have a parade for him, and then he shows up at the Clash of the Champions, leading into Bash at the Beach. And uh, then uh, and then that's where we'll stop, and we'll pick it up uh, next week uh, with uh, with the Bash to the Beach pay per view match. But uh, but yeah, so check it out. Here we go with uh, Big Dave Meltzer. Well, there's a bunch of stuff. That was a really fascinating period. I mean, I remember when Vince called me up and told me that you know Hogan's taking a break after WrestleMania, and and you know, and it was it was very mm, carny. You know, I mean, it was kind of like. I sensed that Vince saw that Hogan was, um, you know, you know, becoming a, um, you know, not a very well-respected thing, but he's still Hulk Hogan. And I, I thought that Vince, Vince's mind was that I can turn Hulk Hogan into this sympathetic character by having him retire, and then people will want him to come back, and we bring him back for next year's WrestleMania. And Hogan would not retire, you know, at the, the WrestleMania, you know, I mean, that, that was the idea is that Hulk Hogan goes in there. It's his last match. They don't you know, necessarily say it, 
because remember there was going to be like a big announcement that Hulk Hogan was going to make at that WrestleMania, and he never made an announcement, and that was the, the retirement. So he just disappears. Vince is going to book him for a year. Then he comes back, and when he came back, I mean, it was big because he was Hulk Hogan, but it was not as big as I expected. It was not as big as Vince expected, and I'm sure it was not as big as Hogan expected. The, the, the company lost a lot in that year of popularity. I mean, the popularity went, went way down, and Hogan coming back, while it helped, you know, it didn't bring it back to normal, and I think that they were expecting it. And then Hogan went out there, and they put him on house shows, and they didn't draw that well, and Hogan was always such a big draw. And they put the belt on Hogan at um, WrestleMania, and people kind of resented it, you know, because it was kind of like, it was almost like this guy came from the past to screw Bret Hart, and and then, you know, the whole thing where he wouldn't, you know, the the ultimate on that was is that he he then passes the torch to Bret, and then he refuses to do that, and then they just kind of have the falling out, and he leaves, and he, you know, he... He signs the deal with New Japan while he's in WWF, and then he, he, um, you know, is going to work for New Japan to Thunder in Paradise, and then he's on the set of Thunder in Paradise, and that's when Bischoff made him the big offer. And at the same time, I think from a Vince standpoint, because Vince is so self-centered, that he got um, immunity in the in the trial. You know, it's like so essentially, they they gave Hulk Hogan immunity to testify against Vince. They had a Hulk Hogan dead to rights. I mean, obviously. Um, and I don't know the exact stuff, but whatever it was, it was pretty scary. And Hulk Hogan chose to save himself. And Vince, I guess, thought that, you know, he shouldn't have done that. And so that, that was a big one. That was a real big one. And then even when Hogan, you know, in the trial itself, I thought he saved Vince. Vince was very mad at Hogan uh, for, for every all of that. So that was another thing there. Um, but, you know, in the timeline, everyone goes like he left Vince to go to WCW. He left Vince to leave Vince to go to do Thunder in Paradise and work for New Japan Pro Wrestling on big shows. Then he went to WCW after that, um, you know, month, you know, you know, almost a year later. And, um, you know, they made him a ridiculous offer, which at the time we all thought was foolish. And in, and in hindsight, you know, up until whatever, um, you know, it, it was a it was a bad deal in um, 1999 and 2000 for sure, but from 1994 to 1998, you know, what, what looked on paper to be an incredibly bad deal was not such a bad deal after all because, you know, I mean, WCW really really drew a lot of money for a couple of years there with Hogan. And Hogan was, when Hogan went to WCW, he really drew big. And some of it was, um, he was Hulk Hogan. And uh, I think that, um, it was the first time in the new organization and they, he didn't feel old in WCW and in WWE he did at the end, you know, cause it was new. It was in a new organization, kind of like fresh coat of paint on Hulk Hogan. So when he is ready to sign with WCW, or he actually does sign, but WWF can actually match the deal, and uh, and Vince is is you know right smack dab in in the beginnings uh, of the trial stuff. In hindsight, did Vince ever think that it was a mistake that he did actually not match the deal and let Hogan go? 
Well, you know, they were on bad terms anyway, and I'm sure Vince looked at those numbers and thought that those numbers were insane because it was way more than they ever paid anybody, including Hogan. So he probably just thought, and business was depressed anyway. So I think at the time, Vince probably looked at it like, you know, they're just going to lose so much money on this deal. Um, you know, years later, when he, would he look back, would he have done it? Yeah, I think so. If he knew then, you know, in 1997 or 1998, would he have done it? But you know what? I mean, if Hogan would have stayed, I don't know that it's the best thing in the long run because no one was going to get over bigger than Hogan as long as he was there. And the whole Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin, that whole thing, if Hulk Hogan was in that company, none of that happens. They're not the focal point. Hulk Hogan's the focal point. It won't be new. It won't be fresh. And I don't know that they... um, um, I don't think WWE has that comeback without Steve Austin. And Steve Austin would not be pushed uh, because he wasn't proven and Hulk Hogan was proven. It would be the same problem that, that WCW would have at the same time with their young guys not getting over or not being allowed to get over. You know, you know Goldberg snuck over and then you know, was kind of put in his place. And Austin snuck over but was never put in his place because they needed someone they needed someone new and the whole reason that WWF made that comeback was because of new blood on top as mm-hmm. opposed to the old blood so I think that while Vince may have looked at and gone home you know like when they were losing oh I wish we had Hulk Hogan um, in the long run I think it was for the best um, certainly after 96 that they didn't have Hulk Hogan who was all involved in the recruitment part? And, and I guess Bischoff is probably the one that gets the credit for it. But, uh, you know, ha- Blair, Blair was Blair was a big one. Yeah, I, re- I remember him. I think maybe even in his book, he, he had he had mentioned it. But uh, because it's not like there were tons of people who Hogan had worked with in at, at WWF in WCW at that time. Right. I mean, he knew people, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was Eric Bischoff and it was Ric Flair. Yeah. And then, um, I guess the last thing, uh, just to kind of, uh, wrap this up, but when Hogan signs, uh, I think you are, are very, uh, in your, in, in the observers, you're, you're pretty skeptical because of that, of that high price. Because I think yeah, I remember I remember looking at that contract going it's too high, but he really did draw on pay per view. I mean, like his his you know that's the one thing with Hogan that you know sometimes people forget because now nobody draws is that he really was a difference maker. Um, you know, I mean WCW that whole comeback of WCW. I mean they would have come back to a degree without Hogan. I think you know just because they were so weak at that one period, and I think that. You know, they would have picked up a little bit without him, maybe. I don't know. That's even hard to say. But he was he was a giant difference maker in the wrestling war in, in that in that period. I mean, he was he was the difference maker. I mean, they could have picked up Randy, you know. But, you know, even like Randy Savage and Roddy Piper, if Hogan wasn't there, I don't know that Randy Savage and Roddy Piper would make that jump. And without all those guys, you know, I mean, Holland Nash, would they, you know, if they didn't have – that comeback of business, would they have been able to offer Hogan, I mean, uh, Hall and Nash the money to come over, and would Hall and Nash have taken it seriously? You know, it's like Hogan really opened the door for everything, I think. 
thanks to Big Dave for helping us out there. And so we're going to take this from uh, basically when he signs. And it's, it's really interesting because WCW at this time, Hogan has not yet signed, but they do some interviews with him that makes it look like he is definitely there. Do you remember them teasing him and doing interviews with him before he was even signed to do uh, to do matches with WCW? Yeah, I remember like they started bringing up his name early on, and also some interviews they would show like he's on set of Thunder in Paradise, and this is like you know you know Flair was you know feuding as a babyface with uh, Colonel Rob Parker in his stud stable. And, you know, Colonel Robert Harger has this, his secret stud that's coming in the face, uh, Ric Flair Sambury, and it's actually, it ends up being Barry Windham. And, but, you know, even stuff before that with um, Steamboat and Spring Stampede, like, you know, he was talking to like, like about Hogan, but then he would quickly switch. Like, I have other problems. I have, you know, Steamboat ahead of me for right now. And also same thing with Colonel Robert Harger's guy. So they were always mentioning it and keeping it and teasing it and teasing it. And, and just because they didn't want you to probably, you know, lose interest in what they had for April and May. But yeah, I remember that. I remember being like, Oh my God, they said Hogan's name on WCW. It was yeah. a, a mind blowing experience. Just like, uh, it was of Hogan, uh, Frick flares, a uh, world, uh, the championship belt showing up on wrestling challenge with Bobby Heenan. So they're doing quarterly tapings in Orlando and Hogan and beefcake and Jimmy Hart, are there because, like you said, of the Thunder and Paradise set. So they're they're pretty close together. They mention Hogan all the way back in February on Super Brawl. Uh, in, in this time frame, also, you know, the, the Dusty. We, we've talked about this this whole thing with Rick and Dusty, and uh, Dusty is uh, is out of power at, at this time frame, and Flair becomes the head of the booking committee. And so you really know that Flair probably thinks that he has Hogan because he and Steamboat were going to do like a babyface, babyface thing. But soon thereafter, Flair turns heel. And I don't think he necessarily turned heel to get ready for Steamboat, but it was more like, okay, like I'm going to have to do this thing with Hogan. So let's turn heel. So Flair turns himself heel. One of the interesting things is uh, WrestleMania 10 is going around this time. And obviously it's it's this uh, very important show for WWE. Um, Bret Hart is is going to be the champion and and they're going to he's going to be their guy. They have this great ladder match with Lex uh, with uh, Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. And all of the mainstream pro wrestling uh, the pro pro wrestling like uh, information is is based on Hogan because he's doing Thunder in Paradise. So you know he's the guy. Like if if you had uh, some sort of program or whatever, and you want to promote wrestling, the first thing is like, can we get Hogan? And I'm sure a lot of those people thought that he was still with WWF, but he's promoting Thunder in Paradise, so he's available. And that's where you know all of the wrestling talk. So WrestleMania 10, as good as that show was, and as good as those two main events were, it's not getting a lot of mainstream uh, ma- mainstream uh, coverage because of Hulk Hogan. Like he's the one that is still getting the coverage. But get this. 
What's also happening at this time when Hogan is about to decide what he wants to do is the Vince McMahon trial. So, you know, you think about Vince at this point, like he's decided to move away from Hogan, but Hogan is, is, is now talking to the competitor and Vince is on trial. Like this is like the worst (laughs) case scenario for Vince McMahon. And because the Hogan steroid stuff all happened in WWF, like that's kind of, you know, it's almost like Vince gets gets all the all the flack for that, even though Hogan is possibly going to be working at the other company. So that's actually that's a that, that that's a pretty interesting uh, situation that's going on that I, I almost don't hear a lot about it when when they talk about, you know, Hogan's second run with WCW, just all the trials and tribulations that Vince McMahon was about to go through and WWF as well, because they kind of have to reinvent themselves after uh, WrestleMania 10. Yeah, it's an interesting time for sure. And, and, and it's, just, it's just so crazy. Like, well, now we look back at that WrestleMania 10 as like this. And a lot of people look fondly of the, you know, the Bre- our own match is one of the best matches ever. Um, the ladder match is so historic now, you know, it was kind of like, you know, even though it wasn't the first ladder match, but what kind of started all of ladder matches, at least to the, now you had one every show after that, it seemed like, um, going after that. But yeah, WCW was very interesting. Flair actually didn't turn heel until June, technically. He worked a little more heelish with Steamboat because he's more comfortable that way. Took some jazz at Steamboat, but he didn't really go full heel until Clash of Champions in June when he uh, unified the title to Sting. I actually watched that show. I didn't watch it very closely, but I had it on when I was working, and I, and I made sure to, to just. I, I wanted to see how they presented Hogan. And the entire show was like, here's what's coming up next, but don't forget Hogan mm-hmm. is coming on. So he was definitely such a big part of that show, even though it was Flair and Sting. And the whole idea of that show was, you know, sh- sh- uh, Sherry is going to pick her guy and she's got face paint on. So people think it's Sting, mm-hmm. but r- really it's Flair. And she helps, you know, she helps Flair win that match. Sting kind of looks like a, a dupe mm-hmm. in that match. But, um, okay, so uh, so when when they get to contract stuff so he signs in may wwf has a clause where they can match whatever contract that he signs but wcw comes on so strong that vince is like eh, like we, we're not going to match that and it's interesting because you know i i i talked to i talked to big dave in, in the interview but um i did i did wonder if like you know, because Vince is going through all this stuff with his trial, if it affected, you know, maybe what he was thinking of as far as as far as letting Hogan go, because they had the opportunity to, to match contract. But I think WCW created a, a contract that they knew Vince was never going to match. There was pay-per-view stuff involved where, you know, Hogan would get X number. Actually, I think I have the figures here. So, um, $300,000 per match for three pay-per-view shows, three Clash of the Champions, plus 25% of any increase in pay-per-view revenue above the WCW average, and 25% of the house for a handful of house show dates in Europe and the US, and 65% of all the merchandising revenue for uh, until the end of the year. And, uh, and and so you know that they, they really signed signed him to something that 
I'm sure they figured that, okay, if we don't kind of go above and beyond, Vince can easily match yeah. and, we, and we don't have our guy. Yeah, they, they, they didn't want to give him away. And then, you know, he, you know, he did help their business a lot coming in for sure. You know, there's no doubt about that. So his contract is such that WCW basically has to almost double their buy rate or their, their normal buy rate from 1990, uh, 1994, uh, you know, which was probably like, uh, a little bit less than 0.5, probably 0.4, something like that. So he, so in order for them to afford Hogan's contract, they had to almost double the buy rate. And that actually happens when, you know, the, I think they had done, I, I don't know what the spring stampede one was. It was, it was around like 0.43. And then when they do the bash at the beach, uh, it was like a 1.0. So they did, they actually more than doubled it, but there was like, some wonder, right? Like, you know, the, the ratings, H- Hogan's rating segments on uh, WCW Saturday night were not much higher than what they were already doing. So there was a little bit of worry about, you know, whether or not he, w- he was worth it. So his, uh, his debut on WCW was on an, a live WCW Saturday night, which is actually kind of interesting because I, I remember that. Like, I remember them... Uh, talking about that they were going to go live. And I always wondered, I was like, are they really live? I'm not really sure they're live, but they, they, they ran a live uh, show that weekend. And, and, and before uh, you, you can, you know, you can, you can talk about this, but I, I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the major WWF angle that debuted that same weekend? Uh, Bob Backlund turning on Brehart? Returning heel? <laughs> no, this is a good guess. Fake Undertaker. Aha, uh-huh. yes, right. Brian Lee. Which I dug this angle, by right. the way, until the match happened. That's uh, one of Jason Hagholm, our, our buddy, who's actually going to, um, he, he's going to, he, he uh, you, you heard him, you, Jason Hagholm, you heard him on, on uh, the first segment of this show. Uh, my old my old podcast partner, but that's one of Jason Hagholm's favorite uh, or most memorable because I think 1994 is like a sweet spot mm-hmm. for him becoming a WWF wrestling fan. All right, so uh, the other thing in his contract, he's got creative control of all of his finishes. Nice to be Hogan. Uh, um, Ted Turner decides that in order to make this thing even bigger than than it is. He's going to be involved in the contract signing for Hogan and Flair. Do you remember? Yes, there's this? the uh, and the and the you know Flair and Hogan cross the table right right in center. There's Ted Turner. Yeah, yeah, definitely the build up to Bash at the Beach or or, or Bash at the Beach '94 was really a great job. They really made it important, and and when it happened, it felt important. Okay, here's another thing of, of, of the, do you remember this? So WCW, I don't remember exactly what show it was. It may have been the Sunday show. But they have a control center about a week before the Clash of the Champions, or maybe it was the weekend before the Clash of the Champions, that gave away all the results <laughs> to the Clash. Do you remember this remember happening? It happening? I, mean, I don't remember happening like i watched it live but i do i do remember um, that that story later on yes because in at the actual clash they try to like 
make mention of it uh but you know they they're they're like it was probably more it probably to them it was it was more embarrassing than than it needed to be but yeah they they mentioned it at the clash champions uh i don't know sting was like oh you know they're just playing mind games it's you know whatever uh so the ratings I, i mentioned the ratings earlier the clash with hogan there live so his his real debut uh in in at the clash and then the Flair Sting unification match. So for the inter- international title and for uh, for the the main title, does the fourth lowest clash number of all time. So wrestling obviously really cold at this point, but still, you know Hogan is not driving ratings. But as we would see at the Bash of the Beach, he would actually he he did drive pay per view buys. So that was an interesting kind of corollary between uh, in the in this in, you know in Hogan coming to WCW. There's a fun promo with Hogan at I think on the set of Thunder in Paradise being interviewed by Mean Gene and um Bobby Heenan. And when Flair's like and Hogan's talking about this upcoming match at the Clash Championship Sting and and Flair he talks about, you know, the WCW World Championship and the Championship Sting has like he didn't even know it was like what, what it was called like a WWE international title. It was just yeah, so yeah, yeah. funny. Like the th- it's yeah it's a yeah yeah window. basically and it was yeah so yeah I, I remember I remember I remember that that promo and uh, it's I went back and looked at all these promos and I, I gotta say the build has been really good. Flair cut a hell of a promo, um, you know, leading to the to the Bash of the Beach too, like one of a, a big time money promo and. Uh, I think I posted it on the uh, on the fight game the fight game uh, Facebook group. So um, yeah, it's, this was a great time. I remember being super excited. I remember in my gut knowing the results, even though I really wanted Ric Flair to win. <laughs> so oh, yeah. uh, oh, there yeah. was, the, but I was kind of happy that you know WCW, WCW got a big get, you know, in Hulk Hogan, and hey, you know, the little guy is finally you know win, uh, competing against the big guy finally. So that, that, that was exciting for me back then. Okay, so what happens in the clash is, uh, like I, like I mentioned, Flair wins the match. Sting is he, like he he's worried because Sherry's down, so he goes and checks on Sherry. Flair sneaks up from from behind and, and pins him, and then uh, and then Sherry comes in and she I think she 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 hits Sting at some point. And he raises up and he kind of walks towards her. Flair undercuts him. And so he takes out the knee. And then Hogan comes in. I think Hogan gives Sherry an mm, atomic yeah. drop or something. Uh, and so, the, you know, that's kind of how the show goes off air. It's Hogan, you know, caressing Sting, which is an, an interesting uh, an interesting view, considering that, you know, four years later, they're they're the or three years later, they're the you know, they're the big program for, for WCW Flair uh, Hogan against Sting. Um, it was it was it was a little bit surreal, I, I would say. So I am at this point in time. I am. I would have just graduated from high school, so I'm like 18. And look, wrestling is not on my priority at this point, but I'm still kind of into it. And and the Hogan coming to WCW kind of pulls me back a little bit. Because, you know, when you're in high school and you kind of grow out of this stuff, I, I wouldn't I never officially grew out of it. I was just a little bit more distant. I wasn't as hardcore of a fan as I was, you know, when I was like, you know, 14 or 15. But this did pull me back a little bit. And the reason it pulled me back was, A, you know, I, I'm a Hogan guy. 
But obviously, seeing him in a different arena, seeing him under the WCW umbrella, seeing if he could actually help them compete with WWF at that time, I was so intrigued. But like you, I was like, okay, like what's the what's the end game here? He's going to beat Flair, and then who's next? Because you know, unless it was Sting, I, I was like, there there might not be a guy. You know, there there was there was there was obviously there. You know, Vader was there, but you know, Flair had just beat Vader a couple of uh, you know two times already, so it's not like he was this indestructible guy. Um, and I was just like, I want to see it. I want to see Hogan win. But when he does win, it's going to be a little anticlimactic because I don't know what's next for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And then Rick Rude was hurt. You know, I didn't know that back then. Like, I didn't really understand that he blew out his back, right? Because they still kind of promoted Rude or mentioned Rude in May. So it was always, he was like a top heel at the time. So I always thought it was going to be Rude and Hogan that eventually, like, you know, when Hogan was coming in, he starts sizing up the the heel side of the roster and think, Oh, they could do this match and this match. And of course the dream matches, of course, Ric Flair, of course, was technically still a dream match, at least within WCW. And then of course the, the big one was, you know, Hogan is staying to do that match, but on the heel side, it was Vader. Um, and he also had rude at the time and I was, this is early May. And then also I was really big into Steve Austin at the time. And, you know, and I thought maybe, oh, wow, Hogan and Austin would be great too. And, and this, you know, who, and we didn't know that he was about to bring in his, the Hogan friends. Yeah. His friends, (laughs) you know, watching Austin on the, uh, on the clash, he's got black trunks, black boots, goatee. He, that's the closest, uh, you know, he would look to, his his famous version of the Steve Austin character. He was a heel, so he walked out with a little bit of a sneer. Uh, he still had the hair, but I was like, wow, like this is so close to the version of Steve Austin that we actually did get. It was pretty Yeah, no, it was one of my favorite runs of anyone as a wrestler. Just um, his U.S. title run, is, I was just totally into it from the minute he won it in December of 93 to... Until he had lost it in September '94, unfortunately, that was a dark day in my fandom when he lost the U.S. title to uh, to Jim Duggan. The way he did it, in only seconds. Oh yeah. my God! Well, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, what we're gonna do next week is we will talk about the Bash at the Beach match with Shaquille O'Neal and Mr. T. You know, uh, I was reading one of the observers. And uh, one of the uh, one of the gets or, or who who they were trying to get was like I think it was like Sly Stallone and Wesley Snipes, and and look like you know you, they didn't get those guys, but still at that point in time, like Sha- Shaquille O'Neal is the uh, he had just uh, I think he would have been in his second year in the NBA. That was kind of a, a pretty big get, and 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 bringing back Mr. T to kind of you know rekindle this you know, almost 10 years of, uh, from WrestleMania one, like that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. So, you know, they, they really went out here and, and they, they kind of had to, to, in order to do what they wanted to do, which was, you know, take that they had this sort of opportunity given to them uh, on a, pl- on a platter 
And and you could have said like, yeah, Hogan's too expensive. We're sort of making money here and there on these pay-per-views. We're fine. But they really went for it. And you, you kind of have to commend, you know, Bischoff. And I know Flair was a part of it. We'll have a little bit more of a story of, of kind of who, you know, Meltzer said, you know, it's Bischoff, but there's other stuff out there, you know, where people, are, you know, would like to take credit for, for Hogan. I, I've heard Mike Graham, you know, at some point. <laughs> exactly. So so we'll, we'll go over that a little bit more next week. But yeah, like I, I really commend them for for taking the shot. You know, it's uh, it, it, it was a, a big risk. But at the end of the day, like it's really, you know, the 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 thing that that made them competitive, you know, what it would be two years later where, where they were where they were super competitive with WWF. Yeah, exactly. Like it just, you know, it's it's had a little bit of a not rough start, but, like you know, when it came there, things kind of started going upwards for them. And and I, I think it allowed them to take even more chances, of course, with Nitro and going live on TNT and, you know, the ripple effect after after signing Hogan and for you know, good or bad, like for the most part, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they 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 had their ups and their downs, and there was other programs, and there was other you know, Macho Man and and, and Flair as a program was it was a big deal for them. But yeah, interesting time for us to cover. So, like I said, next week we will talk about uh, the Hogan and uh, and Flair at Bash at the Beach. And sort of the aftermath out of that, and the following week we will talk about that Halloween Havoc match uh, for for their for that segment to end to end the Hogan and, and Flair from from '94. We want Flair segment. All right, thanks to Jason, thanks to Dave, and thanks to John. Jason, where can uh, where can folks find you on social media? You can find me on social media on the Twitter machine at j hagholm one that's the letter j my last name hagholm h-a-g-h-o-l-m and the number one if you want to delve into some of my photos or my instagram it's just the letters j hagholm you did pretty good on the picks with uh with the ufc fights you went five and three i i took it on the nose i went uh, i went three and five myself uh for the year you are at 14 and 8 in fourth tied for fourth place in our uh, picks i am 13 and 9 tied for sixth place john laraca geez he went seven and one on uh, on saturday night he is at 17 and five and heidi fang is at 16 and six and uh, our buddy nick mcmood is at 15 and seven so we will with UFC back. We will be picking up our our picks uh, contest uh, again this year. So if you are interested in checking out our picks, we we, we post them before every UFC pay per view card, uh, usually right before the show starts. So, um, all right, Jason, we are done here. I appreciate you coming on, and uh, I am Double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out.